0: This week I want to continue with the theme of uh, concentration practice, but I want to broaden it. We've been looking, this was really following where Sylvia had taught in particularly in the last uh, session before my first time here in this series, (coughs) that we, we were looking at the three aspects of the traditional Eightfold Path. (laughs) <laughs> that have to do particularly with meditation. We were looking at uh, what's called wise effort or right effort, wise mindfulness, and wise or right concentration. Looking at those aspects, the, the quality of effort which is the level of energy that we have in our practice, the, um, the energy to see more clearly, to be more mindful, very crucial uh, quality. And that connected with mindfulness and concentration are the three areas that are traditionally mentioned as the crucial factors for deepening in meditation. And we've been choosing, or I've chosen, to focus on those here and especially uh, in large part inspired by uh, both uh, a Concentration retreat, which I completed a few weeks ago for several weeks, plus the teaching of the uh, Metta retreat, which we do every January, which is a form of concentration practice, plus having offered a day long on concentration practice at the end of January, has all inspired me to, to explore concentration. So, what I want to do today especially because there are uh, a number of people who weren't here, is give a fairly brief review of what we've done the last two weeks. And then particularly today, focus on two areas. One of them is to look at some of the deeper reaches of concentration practice, where concentration practice can lead us when it, when it becomes more deep. And then secondly, the relationship between uh, the concentration practice and our mindfulness or insight practice, which is the question raised uh, in what Marty was asking as well. So what is the relation of that? How do, we, how do we connect deepening in concentration with deepening in mindfulness and insight? So that's what I want to cover and leave some time for for us to talk together also at the end because my hope is that our, our time together looking at uh, questions of deepening our concentration may have uh, energized and inspired all of us to do that more in our daily practice in the many ways that uh, that can get explored. I mentioned how it's both about what we do in our formal meditation but it also has implications for our daily lives. That in other words concentration really has to do in many ways with focus and simplicity. And in our daily lives, um, simplicity, focus, prioritizing, living the way we want to live is a big issue for most of us. You know, and many of us, particularly in the culture the way it is now, may feel uh, overly distracted, overly pushed and pulled in various directions for all sorts of reasons, whether it's uh, you know, the presence of uh, all sorts of technology and electronic uh, media, or challenges economically, or just the all the stimuli that are available in the Bay Area, or in New York, <laughs> That's not so different, <laughs> and or Chicago, <laughs> uh, Petaluma. <laughs> <laughs> Petaluma is definitely increasing in complexity and. In I first went through Petaluma in 1985, and it was way sleepier than it is now. <laughs> for sure. Okay, that's some of you don't know Petaluma so well. It was more of a little bit of an inside joke, but okay. So, um, just scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah. There was actually an article in Petaluma in the Chronicle yesterday, so we may know. Anyway, for those who not on my reading list. Anyway. Okay. So. Um, so it is important to see these three qualities, uh, effort, cons- mindfulness, and concentration, as very central ways that we can focus. And I've, t- I've talked about effort. Uh, and again, for some of us, that may not be a good translation. The, the word in the Pali is virya, uh, which is actually related etymologically to words like virile, you know, and uh, has that sense of energy. Um, and it really has to do especially with the energy to be present and aware and wise moment to moment. Most basically that's what effort is about. So it's not somehow about having the strain and the stress and striving and, you know, doing superhuman effort. That's not really the heart of effort. And I think mean, it's when we translate that as effort, we can sometimes have the connotations that have more to do with striving and strain, you know, in the sense of I have to do something that's totally unrealistic for me, like I should sit four hours a day where I've only sat half an hour so far. And if I don't do that, I'm a failure. You know. So uh, talking about effort is not a setup for judging ourselves. It's really the what helps us to be more present and have more of a sense of practice moment by moment. That's really what it is. Classically, I'll say a little bit about effort now. Classically, effort was talked about in four ways. It's talked about uh, in, in ways which are actually uh, expressed uh, in ways that aren't always accessible. If I can remember, it's, classically it's, uh, it's expressed. There are four <laughs> ways to develop effort. One is to um, uh, work for the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome factors. <laughs> That's how the translation, I have a feeling that in the original language, <laughs> Those words rolled off the tongue in a better way. <laughs> the non okay, the, the arising of unarisen unwholesome factors. And then the second is the, um, the passing away of arisen unwholesome factors. The third is the arising of unarisen wholesome factors. And the fourth is the passing away or the, the maintenance of the continual arising of arisen wholesome factors <laughs> now in english <laughs> i remember i was on a retreat once i was on i think on a long retreat and i was actually in a deeply ecstatic place i had been ecstatic the whole day and then i went to a talk on wise effort and <laughs> everything just plopped <laughs> When people were repeating those, those words, it was. I, I don't mean to at all disparage that teaching, but the translation doesn't energize. But luckily, one of my students a few years ago said, when you actually go through the language, these are actually very similar to the rules for skillful kayaking. <laughs> and the rephrasing of all of this in kayaking terms Is very, very helpful because if you actually think it out, it actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, the first rule of kayaking is stay out of trouble. Okay, that's the non arising of unarisen unwholesome factors. In other words, do what you can not to get into states of mind and states of heart which are problematic. You know, sometimes we say don't go there, (laughs) right? And that's part of wise effort. Okay, and so uh, the kayaking expression. More pungent, stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. The second guideline: know what to do if you get in trouble. Very simple. Meaning, know how to work with difficult states of mind and heart and body. A part of wise effort. Okay. The third kayaking guideline: develop good habits. That's the arising of unarisen, uh, the arising of unarisen wholesome factors. Meaning. Develop mindfulness. Develop concentration. Develop develop these wonderful states. That's what the third one means. In other words, develop in kayaking terms. Develop good habits, and the fourth, keep them going. Okay, everyone clear now? <laughs> <laughs> Translation done. Very good. Which but the, fourth one the, the okay. So I'll repeat the oh, four kayaking guidelines. These are really. This is really at the heart of wise effort. So it means first to. Um, uh, be conscious about going places, stay out of trouble, is the pun- quick way to say it, meaning be careful about where you go. Mm-hmm. Think, think of the kayaking metaphor. Second, if you do get in a difficult state, if you get in trouble, know what to do, part of the training. You have difficult mind states, body states, heart states, know what to do. Uh, third, uh, develop good habits, or you know practice. So this would mean, in the meditation context, developing... All of these qualities, mindfulness, concentration, develop them, practice, and so forth. And the fourth is keep them going. <laughs> you know, Keep practicing, keep them maintained, again, more or less by continual practice. So I really was so pleased when I heard those four kayaking <laughs> guidelines. They just take a, a, a Victorian translation and make it contemporary in a way which connects. Yeah. The fourth one in the original. Yeah. I, again, I think we were starting to get the three terms. Yeah. And the reversals. So, what what is uh, with a little more attention to the original language? The fourth one about arising and so forth. It's not arising and so forth. It would be more the uh, the continued arising, the continued of arising of a of arisen wholesome factors. So you basically keep them going. Yeah, the continued arising, keep practicing, and so forth. You. Yeah, you're welcome. So I've been attempting also to keep connecting what effort means to concentration and mindfulness. And that can give a pretty good sense. That, I think the way I just explained it is especially helpful for understanding our mindfulness practice. It's that sense of effort as the attempt to be present, to keep on asking uh, really a, just a few very simple questions What's happening and how should I respond? And if we could just keep on asking those questions, that goes a long way. What's happening right now? You know, and so for me sometimes, an important part of effort has just been if I feel distressed or off-balanced or disturbed, (coughs) just to ask that question of myself, what's happening right now? Very simple question. You know, or I'm feel you know, there's an interaction with someone and I'm feeling off or disconnected or something just to ask what's happening, which takes me into mindfulness. And you can really, just to ask that question is a huge part of what what wise effort means. And then, how should I respond? Those two questions are a very simple way to ask uh, or to say what wise effort or right effort means in a moment-to-moment, very ordinary context. What's happening? How should I respond? So that, along with uh, mindfulness and concentration, are the three main factors that are named in the classical teachings. In the last two times, I've talked quite a bit about concentration. And I want to review that just very, very briefly before moving on to those themes that I was mentioning, that we've given a focus to concentration practice. I've mentioned a few times that the term concentration is not the best translation of samadhi. That probably something like collectedness of mind and heart and body or unification of mind and heart and body is a better translation. That the very etymology of the term samadhi, the S-A-M, has to do with bringing together as similar, as I mentioned, to our words like summary. Again, the the Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages, so there we have a lot of roots that are familiar to us. You know, and this is one of them, that it's related to words like summary, so it has to do with bringing together or um, collecting, gathering, unifying. That's really what concentration is. And that's a very helpful reframing, and I've been unsuccessful in Every time I mention concentration in the talks, of rephrasing it as unification of mind. I just, concentration's in my my mind groove, as it were. But if we can think about it like that, that's quite important because it helps us avoid a sense of concentration as me here concentrating on that over there. Concentration is more like a unified experience where it's not like me here focusing on my breath over there, but more like awareness of the breath unified in experience, and that is and that is uh, something which comes as we develop further in concentration. So it's okay if it feels a little bit like here I am trying to focus. You know? It can feel like that at the beginning. As it gets more mature, it becomes more relaxed and more unified. It's one of the marks of a more mature concentration. So the essence of concentration practice is simply to have only one object. You know, I'm using object to mean, it could be the breath, it could be saying the metaphrase, or having the sense of loving kindness in the heart. And I mentioned how there are classically 40 different ways to do concentration practice. And in other traditions, all sorts of ways, you know, looking at a candle, being with a repetitive prayer, a chant, and so forth. You know, at the end of the quotations, I have, uh, a reference to the Russian Orthodox tradition and in that tradition there's the repetition of what's called the Jesus Prayer, which is over repeated over and over again and there's a very interesting quote here which talks about how that's repeated, that's more of a heart practice, how the warmth develops in the heart and uh, how this is dependent on continual attention and just staying with one object. So that's what we do In our practice, we just stay, for example, with the breath, and over and over again, we come back to it. And this is different than mindfulness practice, that we are just returning over and over again. So in concentration practice, if we have thoughts about something, we have emotion that comes for a while, we don't notice it, we don't note it and give a label to it and stay with it, we just immediately come back to the breath. I mentioned the exception to this is when something extremely strong happens that maybe is around for five or ten minutes or half an hour. And then we would switch out of concentration practice and go to mindfulness practice. So concentration practice is crucial because it helps us really to, as it were, cut through our stuff. It helps us to see beneath the surface to have that kind of microscope that lets us look more deeply. for many of us, it can really be crucial to develop further in concentration, and to give some attention to concentration, because it helps us to go beneath the surface. And sometimes in our meditation, when we don't have adequate concentration, we may be we may just be spinning around. And so it can really be helpful uh, to deepen in concentration. This can be done by um, Increase quality in meditation where we actually have a little more focus uh, on how to concentrate could be like some of the practices that, we, that I did at the end of the sitting where we just take three minutes, where we just have that high quality of effort. That's something valuable to do. Sometime in the middle of a sitting just say, okay, just for these three minutes, maybe the last three minutes, I'm really going to give that quality of wise effort moment to moment. Sometimes we can do it for three minutes to try to have that same effort for half an hour, doesn't work. But we can do it for three minutes. So that's a valuable way to deepen. We can increase the quality of our sitting. Sometimes uh, quantity leads to increased quality. So sometimes, a lot of times it's helpful just to sit longer, have a longer sitting. Sometimes, I think many of us probably have noticed that when we sit, there can often be a kind of continual deepening the longer we sit. You know, so we might feel, okay, at 20 minutes one layer falls off, at 30 minutes another layer falls off, at 40 minutes another layer falls off. Sometimes we have that experience. What that means, if we only sit for 20 minutes, some of those other deepenings aren't going to happen. And so it can be helpful to sit longer. Uh, doing retreats is a wonderful way to deepen concentration. You know, when I was first practicing and I did some of my first retreats I, and I was, I was very interested, I was practicing at that point a lot, I was practicing, I was a student, so I didn't have to work quite as much, and I was able to practice, I was able to practice about two hours a day, and when I did my first retreat for, I think, 14 days, I had the subjective experience that that 14-day retreat increased my concentration, you know, uh, as if I had been practicing for another year or two, you know, that it really The retreats can make a huge difference, and uh, so increased practice retreats are another way to deepen concentration, but we need often that concentration to cut through our repetitive habitual tendencies of mind. I think we know that. You know, that's why we sit in a protected environment. That's why we sit together, why we are silent, why in retreats we have silence, and we work with stillness, we don't talk to each other, because we want to reduce the input so we can develop in concentration. So we, we, uh, as we develop further, we stabilize attention, uh, we have more of a sense of this uh, still small voice, as the, as the Quakers would say. something. You know, a quiet interior presence develops further and gets, gets deepened, which is this beautiful resource. As we concentrate, develop Concentrate More, it translates, not always in a linear way, but over time, into greater ease, relaxation, um, greater peace, serenity. And again, it's not linear, because as we said last time, the practice of concentration has aspects of purification as I was mentioning in the questions which means that stuff comes up. you know We have deeper concentration we go to a little layer, a layer below ordinary consciousness, and we meet some parts of our unconscious to use contemporary language. We meet some parts of our unconscious, I go to a little deeper level and I realize, oh, there's that grief about this relationship or what happened or... Um, something else that is there waiting for me as I go deeper or some kind of longing for something in my life that's not realized. I touch that, that gets met. And so it's not linear. It's not like we concentrate. We go to to deeper and deeper in a linear way, greater levels of peace, serenity, ease, relaxation. Generally, yes, in the short run, it can feel bumpy. (laughs) And that's the purification process, just to know that. But in the long run, it definitely moves in that way uh, because uh, we, in a way, as we go through aspects of what I was calling a purification process, we work with certain issues and there's a potential actually of working them through to a significant extent so they don't arise in the same way when we've, when we've really stayed with some uh, major area. There's also, as we deepen in concentration, there's potentially this greater level of um, of bliss and even healing, that there can be very intense pleasure in concentration. The terms used classically have to do with with rapture and with with deep levels of contentment and happiness, the qualities of peace. And that, that's a, a good segue to talking about um, some of the further reaches of concentration practice because uh, it's possible when one stays with the deepening of concentration to go into quite profound states of peace and bliss and happiness, which can be very, very powerful and valuable in a number of ways. Um, In the discourses of the Buddha, these are identified as what are called uh, jhana states. Uh, Jhana is spelled J-H-A-N-A. And there are a series of deeper absorptions which are possible with concentration practice. Um, And these were actually the practices which the Buddha used throughout his life. And if you read some of the texts, when the Buddha was dying, he went into these deep absorption states. This is what he felt most helpful. So these states are quite valuable for having a kind of an interior sense of peace, and and bliss. So I know I know that she's a physician. So this is this is maybe maybe right, some, something that is an emergency call. So we have to give some space for it. <laughs> so if the judgmental mind arises, do you know what to do? <laughs> okay. uh, um, so the, these um, these deeper states of peace. And, and bliss can be very crucial in a few different ways. On the one hand, okay, I'm actually going to have more than two hands, so I better not use that. <laughs> at, least, at least several ways. So, yeah, I kind of have the echoes of my high school English teacher saying, you better be careful of your grammatical constructions if you use on the one hand and you have three things you're going to talk about. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> okay. so. Um, so first, there can be, with the, the, this, this peace and this bliss, it can be very powerful for letting us know of, of human potential and can really actually take away some of our, maybe our habitual or compulsive interest in other kinds of pleasures. You know, that w- in the light of the deep peace and Bliss that's possible just from ordinary human being going deeply. Some of the other ways that we get caught or stuck or reach out or want this or want that may seem less important, and they actually can have less hold on us. So it's one of the one of the learnings which can occur as we as we explore a concentrated mind. Um, we there also can be I, I think quite a bit of healing that occurs as we as we. Maybe move away from some of our wounded territories and touch levels of peace and get a sense, this is who I am most basically. There can be very powerful healing and transformation because we maybe disidentify, maybe with our more wounded places, and they actually get healed. And of course, some of that happens in the mindfulness practice and so forth. So there can be almost like a shift of identity. You know, I'm not so much my wounded parts, but who I am most basically are my beautiful radiant parts, the luminous, blissful parts of myself. That's who I am most basically. And that's that can be very deeply healing and shifting. And then the third reason for the that these deeper states are very powerful is that like in the discussion um, before the talk began with Marty, as we develop that deep concentration, we can then shift and look carefully at experience and work through, in a way cut through, the seeming solidity of our experience and our habits using concentration. And I'll come back to that because that's really ultimately the main reason to develop concentration. It's to see, it's basically to see ourselves and reality more clearly, more deeply, more accurately. And it's again one of the, probably the core reason why concentration is important because without concentration, it's sometimes hard to see through our conditioning and our habits. And so it's a reason to, to practice more. So these, these states of jhana are classically explained as uh, four states which are more connected with form and four states which are more formless. And if you want to have a further description of them in some detail uh, Steven Snyder and Tina Rasmussen have a book called Practicing the Jhanas. And they have quite elaborate descriptions of these states and how to, how to work with them. I won't say so much about them now, but I will say some about the factors. When one is practicing concentration, one moves in the direction of these deeper states by working with what are called five jonic factors. And they're, they're mentioned on, at the end of the handout on the second sheet. That there are five, and these can be developed Uh, in our concentration practice, generally. The first factor that helps us to deepen is called vitaka. And this is the the factor of actually connecting with the object. So when we're with the breath, and we're actually connecting with the breath, that's vitaka. That's a factor which deepens concentration, actually connecting with the object that's there. The second is called vichara, and that would be keeping the connection going. In other words, we initially have to connect with, with the object, in this case, the breath, but we also have to be able to stay with the breath. You know, We can touch the breath, but we have to learn better how to stay with it over a protracted period so we actually connect with it and have more of the experience of the breath always being there for us, which is not initially very easy, right? But as we practice more, we can have that sense of the breath being there more of the time. And increasingly, most of the time, and and we can't even come to a sense of being in a groove with the breath. So it's there all the time, even without effort—a kind of effortless effort. Is it a question of clarification? Very quickly, yeah. Um, just just a clearer understanding of what connection is. Yeah. And is it awareness of, or you know, when do you know you're actually connected? Connected. So the question is about <coughs> what does connection mean? Is it do you have to know you're connected? It's really about almost like. Um, Uh, intending to be with the breath and actually touching the breath so it's I think it's we would know yes I'm aware of the breath that would be a way of knowing that I'm connecting I'm with the breath I'm aware of it I'm connecting so these are all these five areas are ways to be a little more precise about what concentration practice is we can say how is my connecting is it occurring am I then sustaining the uh, attention to the breath and those are, those are two that we can focus on initially. The third through the fifth factors are factors that develop as concentration gets stronger. There's The third is called PT, which is translated often as rapture or joy. This is the experience of some uh, peaceful, blissful state starting to arise, especially a body state. You know, this would be sometimes some of us may experience some tingling or some energy in the body. This could be what we call PT. And this arises as we have deeper concentration. And it can sometimes be actually, um, it sounds beautiful, but it can sometimes be actually hard to be with. Sometimes the energy can can get, can get a little ragged. Some of you may have experienced that. Yes, it can have the sense of, like a bunch of little raindrops just <laughs> falling all over. <laughs> okay. Is it hail? Hail, okay. okay. So the the fourth is a sense of joy or contentment which arises. And the fifth is one-pointedness, where we increasingly are just just only with the object. So it's helpful to to look at these in terms of our practice and to emphasize them. And the elaboration of the deeper states of concentration, if you look to the text, they're actually elaborated in terms of which of these factors are present. As we go deeper in concentration, we don't need so much to work with connecting and sustaining, it's just there. And it's quite an amazing experience to kind of be just, for example, just with the breath, with a kind of effortless effort, where it's like we're in a, you know, the metaphors that we might use, or I'm in a groove, where I'm just with the breath, I don't have to do anything. I'm just with the breath, or another metaphor that's used is riding the rails. I'm like a train that's on the rails. I'm just going along the rails, and I don't have to have any special effort because I'm just there. That's potentially there, and we probably, most of us probably experience that at least for brief moments, you know, and it can be, as we practice more, that can, that can deepen. So I thought I'd, um, I did a... Um, about five weeks of loving-kindness practice uh, 2005 and I I thought I'd share some metaphors which I use for uh, these five factors which which may be interesting for you and it kind of maybe related to the rain but this was a metaphor about fire that I th- uh, the metaphors that I found I, I did in terms of something like uh, having a fire going which is an interesting metaphor for concentration because it's sometimes talked about as the burning up of the impurities. Concentrations often likened to a fire. So the metaphor I had was the first, vitako vitaka, or the connecting, keeps striking and igniting and starting. Getting the fire going, it's more energetic. So that gets the fire going. (coughs) The the vichara keeps the fire going. (laughs) You know, we've had ignition of the fire, and we try to keep the fire going. It keeps the fire going. It's a little more subdued, but it's constant and continuous, if that makes sense. Then the quality of pleasure, or pity, in the metaphor of a fire, I said, pity spreads the fire to the rest of my body. (laughs) So the sense of that concentration spreads in a way through the body. The fourth factor, sukha, or happiness, uh, adds scented pine and sparklers to the fire. <laughs> that was my metaphor. Scented pine and sparklers are added to the fire, increasing the fire in a gentle way, making it bigger and brighter and more pervasive. So, and then the last one point in this, ekagata brings back the fire to the center of my heart and unifies the fire, warming everything. Oh, very nice. So I won't say too much more about that. Uh, maybe if there are questions, we can come. There's a lot we could say about the, the further deepening of concentration. In the classical text, deepened concentration is said to be connected, actually, with arousing psychic powers. And that's talked about quite a bit in the classical text. And if you read the biography of, uh, of Ma who was a contemporary woman who had very tremendous concentration powers, she talks him about that. In fact, it's, it was said of her that one of the uh, psychic powers she had was the ability to walk through walls. You know, and I, what I remembered about this was that um, <coughs> Sylvia was mentioning this one day to her um, grandson. <laughs> and he asked the question, you may remember Sylvia mentioning this, he asked the question, what happens if she has a thought on the way through the wall. (laughs) Do people using these powers get stuck in walls sometimes if they sort of don't have it totally together? (laughs) I I, I won't answer that question. But that was, I think that was Sylvia's grandson Harrison. Do you remember? She mentions him a lot. He's now a teenager. So anyway. Um, so I won't go so much into that, but those are mentioned in the text and the I think I think it is um, I think it is maybe important just to to bring uh, the discussion to this last part that I wanted to talk about which is the connection between the concentration practice and the mindfulness or insight practice. Sometimes these are seen as separate practices that one has different aims in concentration practice you try to deepen you try to go to these very very deep states and that if you do mindfulness practice it's a different practice you're doing you're doing the you're cultivating awareness in not such a deep state I think in the classical text these were seen as to be combined and in fact that the concentration is important precisely for that reason I gave before that we need a certain level of concentration to cut through habitual thought, habitual tendencies, our conditioning, and that giving a special emphasis to concentration can be crucial for us, especially in a daily life context. You know, that we can, if we focus on concentration and deepen it in various ways, it can really make a difference in daily life just for those, you know, just for that, those moments where, you know, we're caught by habitual tendencies if we have a deeper concentration, we'll notice it more quickly. You know, I, I'm thinking of the Dalai Lama. Uh, said, you know, through all my training, it's not that my bad habits have all gone away. He said, I come from a part of Tibet which is known for angry and irritable people. <coughs> he doesn't not not usually broadcast about the Dalai Lama, right? But he said, I come from a part of Tibet which is known for irritable people, and I still am sometimes irritable. But he says I worked out a lot of stuff when I was first doing practice, you know, like when he did a lot of practice first as a, you know, 17, 18, 19. But before that, he would get irritable a lot. But he says, now I still get irritable or angry, but I catch it really, really quickly. You know, and I think this is one of the places that concentration plays a huge role. If we have more concentration in the mind, we notice the mind, let's say, let's say I've had something difficult happen, and I start judging myself, Okay. And I tell a story how it's my fault and I get down on myself. And we know how sometimes that can, if, we, if, if that sort of takes over, we can be down in the dumps for what? Three hours, three days, three weeks, three years, right? You know, it depend, depends on, on the, the depth or the severity of it. But we definitely could be, have that uh, storyline, that judgment take over. When there's concentration, when there's more concentration, we notice it in five minutes. Or we notice it in, um, you know, later that evening, we notice, oh, I've been really hard on myself. And it's not so much that we do meditation and concentrate, but there's more like there's concentration in our system. And we notice more. And it's been interesting. I, One person who I've worked with recently at the Metta retreat, uh, she had... You know, She's been doing a lot of retreats. You know, she's a teacher. She works all the time. She's a teacher at a community college. And she was noticing that this recent retreat somehow brought the concentration to a deeper level. And she's been noticing that habitual tendencies, which even would take over for a while before the retreat, somehow she's moved to a place where she's noticing it much more quickly. And it's stabilized. You know, it may go back a little bit, but it's stabilized over now six weeks or so since the retreat. And this is what concentration can do. We can really, really go there. In the classical text, I think there is much more of a sense of the mutual value and interdependence of concentration and mindfulness or insight practice, precisely like the example I just gave, that Concentration helps us to see uh, more deeply um, those tendencies and ultimately helps us to uproot what's there. This is from the Thai teacher, Achan Cha, who was Jack Kornfield's teacher. He said, meditation is like a single stick of wood. Insight, meditation is one end of the stick and concentration practice is the other. If we pick it up, does only one end come up or do both? Insight has to develop out of peace and tranquility. The entire process happens naturally of its own accord. And so there there are many passages where where that mutual value of both is is really crucial. And so for even the way we start doing mindfulness practice, we say we need a certain minimal level of concentration just to do mindfulness. That's why typically we stabilize first by being with the breath, you know, and we we do that. We come to a certain level of concentration, and then we open up awareness to mindfulness. And you know, at times we may uh, have a different bar for, as it were, uh, for how high how high the bar is, how high how much concentration we develop. You know, in some traditions, some practices, one wants to develop the concentration really substantially before you start doing mindfulness practice. You know? And you could, some people would interpret the original instructions in the text on mindfulness, the foundations of mindfulness, as indicating that that one, in a way, needs to have a level of concentration where the usual distractions aren't occurring before one brings to mindfulness, and that one should work on that before doing mindfulness practice. Some teachers would teach that way. And there is a sense that they mutually help each other. It's said in in one place, the foundations of mindfulness are the very basis for concentration. So we need mindfulness practice for concentration, and we need concentration for mindfulness practice, that they mutually imply each other. And um, it's also again. I'll, I'll just repeat that the concentration is necessary. I found some very powerful quotations where, where it's where the importance of concentration is laid out. This dhamma, said the Buddha once, is for one with concentration, not for one without concentration. For someone with deep concentration, liberation is near that one could perfect wisdom without perfecting concentration, this is impossible. So we need to have that kind of concentration to see through. So I could say a lot more about that. Maybe I will next time say a little bit more. But I just wanted to end by suggesting that we work with that balance of concentration and mindfulness in our practice, if you feel so-called for this week. And then we can come back again, that we do something like what we did in the sitting where we maybe sit for half of the time or three quarters of the time, work to stabilize attention, work with the breath, and then shift attention just to looking at experience. And sometimes if we do that for a shorter time, we can have a little more focus and a little more ability just to stay and notice and stay and notice what's there. And so in the long run, the aim of concentration is to see more clearly for the purposes of opening the heart and liberating the mind and body. That's why we do all of this. And hopefully this uh, further focus on concentration can bring out a little bit more the importance of this factor. That's been my purpose. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute. Then we have a little bit of time for, for questions. Questions or reflections. Uh please. Yeah. Uh this is in reference to um arisen and unarisen, wholesome and unwholesome states of yeah. mind. Um at least initially, it, it would sometimes seem as though the effort to make that effort to, to cope would have a quality of awkwardness and artificiality about it. How is that to be interpreted? Is that simply to be accepted and worked through? Or does that suggest that something is inherently wrong with the approach? Or the yeah, can you remind me of your name? Scott. Scott. So Scott's question is about the uh, the quality of uh, what we're calling effort. Uh, and sometimes it seems to be uh, have seems to be awkward or artificial or um, kind of deliberate or not so fluid, we might say, if, I'm, if I can in- interpret it in that way. And particularly for the, uh, what, the, uh, well, different different qualities of effort. And that's fine, basically. It's, it's um, sometimes the analogies used that at the beginning of our practice it is a little bit... Uh, challenging, hard, can feel artificial, can feel like I'm straining sometimes, you know, sometimes the analogy used is that we're like uh, on on some of those old, I don't know, airplanes where you have to get the propeller going by hand, you know, and then you have to get out there and get it going by hand, and then it takes a while to do that by hand, and then you get in the, the plane and it's going by itself, and so, yeah, it can feel like there's a a lot of effort particularly with our distracted minds you know where we get where most of us probably are somewhat overstimulated we have distracted minds and what does it take to bring it back it can be you know it can feel uh, awkward or like I'm not quite doing it or like I have to put out this extra effort is that some of what you're getting at? Yes or or, and the other piece of it is that it also seems somehow or other uh, contrary we've grown Sudden, everything should be illuminated. It all happen at once. Yeah. It, as opposed to putting on the, the effort, the work. Yeah, yeah. Step by step. Yeah, the work and the effort are, are, are crucial. And again, it's, it's not so different from a lot of very ordinary situations of learning. You know, someone who wants to be a musician has to go through learning the scales. Let's say a pianist has to go through learning the scales, which can feel awkward, can feel like, I don't want to do this, you know, why am I doing this? Can have all sorts of things come up, and, and yet one has to somehow keep the effort going. It can sometimes feel like pushing, it can sometimes feel like, this is not coming out of the greatest part of me, and that's okay. And then, you know, when one, when one studies any line, there was, there was someone did a very interesting study of people who were at high levels of proficiency in all sorts of disciplines, whether an artist, musician, engineer, scientist, you know, nurse, whatever. And they found that it had the same dynamics that at the beginning there was some, some something of this awkward, gotta keep doing, just to get things going. But that the qualities of, as it were, the so called expert were those of effortless effort and of ease. And that that, and that was true across all these different disciplines, very quite similar. And meditation is no different. So yeah, it can it can feel like that and it's just normal and fine. So, and it does and we it does take that effort even if you've been practicing for a long time. It, one has to especially when you do something like a retreat, it, you know, it's people have been practicing 20 or 30 years. They go to a retreat. The first few days you have to have that kind of effort. It's hard. Probably a lot of you know that from retreats that it's, it feels like, "Oh my god, I've been practicing for so long. I've come to Wednesday mornings." Regularly, shouldn't I have a better faith than to sit here on the first day of the retreat and feel like I'm in a swamp? <laughs> but you have to do it. So yeah, it's it's normal. And uh, and actually, a significant amount of what we call proactive effort, sometimes awkward, is necessary. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, please. Yeah. I guess you know, and it could be a translation. Yeah. Thing of wholesome and unwholesome. I'm having trouble thinking about that without bringing judgment yeah. into it. Yeah. Uh, and then I remember this is your first time here. I, I do make comments quite often about the Victorian nature of all the translations. <laughs> you know, and wholesome, unwholesome, uh, even words like effort, concentration, they're, they're all, I think we're in need of better translations. And I personally... Um, I don't use the words wholesome and unwholesome that much because it can lead to being judgmental. You can think of it, some people prefer words like skillful or unskillful instead of whole. It, it basically means those, uh, and it's, it's complicated, but I think what's being got at is that there are certain states which um, tend towards freedom and certain states which tend towards getting stuck and we want to encourage the first and work through the second. That's pretty much what's being said, you know. And, and so I think um, a lot of people use, th- it's not a literal translation per se, but use the word skillful or unskillful, which is a little more neutral and not so much tending towards judgment. So, so I think, you know, I, I think there's a whole scale reevaluation of many of the translations for, for exactly the reasons you bring up. Yeah. thanks. Maybe the last one. I just yeah. wanted to make a comment about the concept of judgment yeah. in terms of wholesome and unwholesome. There's always room to be discerning. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a different approach than judgmental. Yeah. Discernment should always be in your life. That, that's right. Uh, so the, the comment was about in terms of we use the word judgmental and uh, I go into this a lot of detail when I do day, the day long on, on working with judgments, but, because it's been an important point, you know, that, the, that uh, the distinction is between being judgmental and being discerning. And that uh, judgment is an ambiguous word because it's used sometimes to mean a neutral discernment. So it can be, con- again, can be confusing. And that, uh, you know, when I, when I work with people around the issues of being judgmental, what I actually find is that the judgmental state typically has some discernment that's all mixed up with reactivity. And so the purpose of the transformative work is to uh, work through the reactivity and liberate the discernment. You know, like if you, I don't know, are very judgmental towards your boss. You You may see a lot about your boss. That actually is quite accurate, right? But the judgmental quality or some reaction or something, (coughs) some edge, and it's possible in working through that to actually preserve the insight that might well be there while working through the reactivity it will help you be much more skillful with your boss. Um, he may or may not be skillful with you or she. <laughs> so okay. Um, so I I love this these topics. I hope you do. I <laughs> hope I've conveyed some of my uh, interest in them. And uh, next week we'll continue, it'll be the last of the series and you can use the handout. There are a bunch of quotations there that I didn't read from that are quite interesting and also uh, some books. A good starting book if you want to go further in concentration is by Richard Shankman who teaches here sometimes called The Experience of Samadhi. If I had to recommend one book uh, to start with it would be that. Then that further book called Practicing the Jhanas is very interesting. Those are both on the list. And then there I also listed a number of websites and further, further articles and possible retreats. And uh, something I think that's not on here that that's I put out on the table, Spirit Rock does offer a concentration retreat. I think, I forget the month, is either April or May, later, later this spring. And that's um, a wonderful retreat where you can really focus in this way and develop. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute to close. (laughs) Letting whatever has been helpful from the morning related to the theme of concentration perhaps and its relation to mindfulness or it could be sometimes we just come here and there's something else that was really important that has nothing to do with that topic. Whatever was helpful from the morning for you. Let it be there along with any intentions for your let's say for your next week or further practice. And so we close by recognizing that we do this practice both for ourselves and for others, that our own being touches many people, ripples out in so many ways, and we offer the fruits of our lives and of our times to others in in those ripples from our own lives, and out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. So, thank you. Thank you for listening.